Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Welcome to episode 88, baby. Just a quick thing <laughs> right off the top. We are going to be dropping another rad rap this upcoming Sunday. I know you're like, oh man, how lucky am I? Two episodes of Bad Dad, Rad Dad a week? for multiple weeks in a row well we skipped this week but it's a lot all at once but we have been going to something very cool in our fair city called the northwest fear fest it's an all horror film festival that's been going on we we haven't gone to uh, we haven't had the opportunity to go to absolutely every film that they're showing but we've gone to some great ones and we're going to be talking about and unpacking all of them in a spoiler-free episode that's coming out this Sunday. So look for it, listen to it, get into it. Very excited about it. Okay, I kick things off with a questionable mystery movie pick. I chose the 2013 action crime drama Only God Forgives. Written and directed by Nicholas Winding Refn and stars Ken himself, Ryan Gosling, as Julian, Kristen Scott Thomas as Crystal, Vitea Pan Shringarm as Chang, Tom Burke as Billy, and Yaya Ying Rata Fongam as Mai. Synopsis. Julian, a drug smuggler thriving in Bangkok's criminal underground, sees his life get even more complicated when his mother compels him to find and kill whoever is responsible for his brother's recent death. I am revisiting this one. I've seen it once before. You have never seen it. What do you think about it? I didn't like it. <laughs> I won't bury the lead. Yeah. Um, And it really is a mystery movie pick because of the way that we do this, the way that we watch movies with each other. I might have heard of a movie, but like I haven't recently looked at the synopsis. When the movie ended and I saw that synopsis, my thought was that's not really what the movie's about. Yeah. Insofar as that is what the movie is about on a literal level, but there's nothing really 
the synopsis that's on um where did we watch it on prime netflix yeah um talks about like the ethical dilemmas of of uh julian and really the film isn't interested in exploring that mm-hmm. because nicholas winding ruffin to his credit is really good at creating a compelling visually stunning image but you've used the word and i think it's perfect is that his films are very cold yes like they're beautiful to look at but they're hollow yeah there's like nothing really going on other than style Mm -hmm. which i can get on board for i can be into a movie that's highly stylized but i think in comparison to drive where it's this american movie set in america with this hyper violence i don't mind that but then setting a movie in thailand and having all these like brutalized thai bodies with this like white man at the center whose brother is so awful deplorable like really like one of the most despicable characters and we're we're shown that very very quickly and like that's kind of the focus was just like not compelling to me at all you know, I kind of felt like, okay, Ryan Gosling is super pretty and I'm happy to watch him in things. But when I looked at the film as a whole, I really felt like uh, the character of Chang should have been the focus. Yeah. Like he should have been the protagonist. Um, and having him and through his character exploring like the intrusion and the violence of these like white drug runners who come into his country, make all this money and then harm people who look like him. That would have been a more interesting story, even if Nicholas uh, Winning Ruffin still kind of approached it in a hollow way. It still would have been more interesting to me. Not dissimilar from feelings we have about a movie we watched later <laughs> this week. Uh, I, I like this one less. Yeah, 100%. There weren't a lot of moments that redeemed this movie at all. I, no. Like I said, I watched this once before back when I saw Drive and me being the white boy I am was like, oh yeah, this is another one from the guy that made Drive with Ryan Gosling. I'm 100% in. But I didn't remember anything about this movie other than than it did have some hyper-violence. But I didn't even remember what that was. And now I remember, well, now I know why I didn't remember this movie because it is not memorable. Well, this is the the interesting thing to me is in reading kind of what Nicholas Winding Refn thinks about the film. And it was was not a critically well-received movie. Mm -hmm. People don't like this movie. Um, well, not people, but critics, for the most part, didn't like the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, he really feels still now when he talks about the movie that he's looking at this like moral grayness through the hyper violence. And I just think, mm. buddy, if you think that you need to watch like I kind of sat sat there and thought about movies I've seen that I really like mm-hmm. that look at. The idea of revenge, the idea of vengeance as a thing that ultimately corrupts you and the moral grayness of that through hyperviolence that are far stronger mm-hmm. any of park chan wook's movies <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah um i saw the devil even memento i like better audition M- maybe i'd have to watch it again mm-hmm. uh, memories of murder even three billboards uh east of ebbing's missouri which i have some problems with but mm-hmm. i think that it's exploring that in a more intentional way for Frick's sake, even Sweeney Todd is doing (laughs) that in a way that's much more intentional and interesting to me. And when we were watching this, the kind of main thing I kept thinking of is I just want to watch Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot is Mm. hyper stylized, looks at 
ideas of ethical grayness and vigilante, like vigilanteism versus vengeance. It's not really about vengeance, but about like chaos, corruption, punishment, sometimes violence of like the, the little people to like the Goliaths. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and the ethical grayness of that. And it's so much better. Yeah. So like freaking skip only God forgives. I, for, I, for sure don't care to watch that Miles Teller uh, miniseries that he made now. I'd much rather revisit Mr. Robot. Yeah, which is, it's just such a bummer because he, Nicholas Winding Refn has such a lock on style and it's very good and very cool. But it's all style, no substance. That's just it. Like, and maybe 20, when, when did this come out? 2013, maybe 23 year old me could be more forgiving of that. But as I've grown as a film watcher and as a person, I, I need that substance. I need yeah. the stuff that's going to stick with me from the, from characterization yeah. and storytelling or a deeper commitment to abstraction. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and then on top of that, like there's some really vile racist and misogynistic things said in the movie that, especially through the character of crystal. Yes. That just have, no bearing on the film like and that was an issue I kind of had with the last film we watched this week too there's a couple like really vile uses of slurs that I don't think actually were necessary like I'm not saying they should never exist in film but I'm saying that if it's there it should have bearing because it's such a ugly thing to hear and such a harmful thing for folks who it's being used against yeah exactly who might be watching these movies Mm mm-hmm there should be real thought about when and why and with what intent they're used. And, there, and I didn't think that, that was there in this personally. Well, felt yeah. like it was there for shock. Well, it, I think it's there for that, but also I felt both in this movie and the movie we watched later this week is that it's literally just a, it feels to me at least like a device being used to show that this is an evil person. The yeah. person who's saying this is a bad person and we're not supposed to like them, but I feel like there's better ways and more nuanced ways that you can achieve that without having to devolve into a <laughs> a bunch of language that is just awful, terrible, nasty, and just very... I don't know. I I don't want to downplay it, but it feels very surface level of like, oh, this person's bad. Let's have them say a bad word. Yeah. Yeah. I have some um, good quotes from other from critics. Nice. Uh, So I find them kind of like funny and well said. So I want to I want to read a few of them. So Robbie Collin, a film critic, said, quote, the film's characters are non-people. The things they say to each other are non-conversations. The events they enact are non-drama. This obtruse <laughs> neon-dunked nightmare that spits in the face of coherence and flicks at the earlobes of good taste. <laughs> oh, man. John Patterson said, quote, somewhere in here is a story that Refn can hardly be bothered to tell. I feel the ghosts of other movies, his influences, his inspirations crowding in on his work, suffocating him and somehow leaving less of him on the screen. Yeah, I just... I want to circle back for a second. I'm stuck on the earlobe flicking thing (laughs) because this is, this is a little bit of a tangent about me, but I, nothing sets me off more and makes me see red more than when somebody does something to my ears. I don't know if you even know this, but if somebody like, if somebody like yanks my headphones out of my ears, you don't like it. Or if somebody, yeah, like flicks my ears or if somebody like, hits one of my ears and one of my ears starts ringing which is like happened in the past like 
even if I accidentally pull out mm. my own earphones, I just, it's all, I see red. I get so angry and I just want to clobber everything in sight. And it's just oh, noted. It's such a, it's I don't such a your earlobes. No, 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 no. Out of your ears. It's such an angry, it's such an anger trigger for me. And it's something I haven't really spoken about until this very moment. But it, it it's funny that this review just made me think of that. But yeah, that's how this movie made me feel. I'm yeah. just, by the end of it, I'm just like, somebody fucking flicked my ear and I just am so pissed. About Robbie it. Collin nailed it. Nailed it. Hey, this one is going to make you laugh a lot. Because you mentioned while we were watching it that you felt like there was some David Lynch influence, but like doesn't hold a fucking candle. Yeah. So Bill Gibson said, quote, David Lynch must be laughing if he had (laughs) created something like Only God Forgives, substituting his own quirky casting for the rather staid choices made by the actual director, Nicholas Winding Refn. He would have walked away from Cannes 2013 with yet another palm door, another notch in his already sizable artistic belt and the kind of critical appreciation that only comes when a proven auteur once again establishes his creative credentials and you know what i think a big part that would have already made his version of it better is i know david lynch would have said it in america because david lynch is interested in this in exploring the underbellies and yes the the nastiness that exists in america and in, yeah in a place that he lives and and that impacts him, right? Yeah. Okay, I have the best one. I've saved it for last. I've been so excited to tell you about this all week. Okay. Now, this is particularly important because last night we saw The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. The Exorcist is going to be on our Northwest Fear Fest rad wrap. It's a big one. So you're going to see this next Sunday. It's a really important movie to both of us. But a magazine, I can't remember which magazine now, had a like, they were doing kind of a um, actors on actors, Mm. but directors on directors with William Friedkin and Nicholas Winding Refn. Oh, shit. And this movie came up because it was critically panned. Like people, Mm. you know, didn't enjoy it and had some really rough things to say about it, as you've just heard. And in this discussion, this chat with William Friedkin, Refn said that he has no regrets about the movie and, quote, I think it is a masterpiece. And it is. Refn said this? Refn said this. Friedkin then apparently looked shocked and said, quote, is there a doctor in the house? We need to get a medic in here. If you think that this is a masterpiece, what is Citizen Kane? Refn then said, quote, Citizen Kane is great, but it was a very inexpensive movie. Or Sorry, like his movie was, an, I don't know, something was inexpensive. And then Friedkin got outraged and said, quote, who gives a shit? Where is there a medic for this man? Ruffin then said that Drive should be included in the list of 20th century masterpieces along 2001 A Space Odyssey and Citizen Kane. And Friedkin said, quote, we won't know about Drive in another 30 years, whether it lives or dies. 2001 was made in 1968. Ruffin then said that Drive is four years old. And Friedkin said four years is a zip. It's not even a blip. It's not a pimple on the asshole of humanity. (laughs) 2001 was made in 1968 and holds up better than all this similar crap. Citizen Kane was made in 1941 and it lives. Holy shit, man. <laughs> That's just like, like Refn was being such a little piss boy. Oh, yeah. And like when this like master director is being like, dude, it wasn't a good movie. Like, just get over it. It wasn't a good movie. Take your lumps. Freakins made some movies that weren't well received. In fact, he's made movies that have since been like critically reevaluated. But I think he's made some not great movies, too. But I love that. Like, where is there a medic for this man? <laughs> I just think that. Refn is every film bro on Letterboxd. I know. I kind of walked away. So you like Drive a lot more than I do. I don't dislike Drive, 
but I don't love it. And then Neon Demon, very similarly, like I thought Neon Demon was, we've talked about it on the show. Mm-hmm. I thought it was like really interesting, but it didn't like, in the end, it didn't do much for me. And I thought it was really beautiful, but in the end, it didn't do much for me. Mm-hmm. After seeing this, I'm like, I don't know. I think Refn is just like a Chrissy no-no. It, he wants to be. Yeah. But I mean, just in that sense of like. He thinks he's really smart. Yeah. He thinks he's really cool. Well, clearly, based on this discussion with William Friedkin, where he just kept doubling down, and it was like, well, if you don't think that Only God Forgives is a masterpiece, then let's acknowledge that Drive is. And he's like, well, dude, it's not. Nobody's going to remember. Like, Drive is not going to be one of the best movies ever made. And it's not. I mean, we're looking at this. I mean, they obviously had this conversation in, like, 2013-ish. We're looking at this from 2023. Is Drive considered one one of the best movies ever made? No. Well, and, like, let's get fucking real. Friedkin is not sitting there being like, oh, The Exorcist is my, is a masterpiece. Oh, Sorcerer is a masterpiece. Those are the only two Friedkin are. movies I've seen. <laughs> I'm just like, I enjoyed both of those movies and would revisit both of those movies far more often than I would revisit any of Refn's work. So, yeah, he... This movie and then the way that he's talked about this movie and like... What a piss Kind boy. of had little like tantrums about this movie. Yeah. <laughs> only make me like him and his work less. So yeah. there you go. He's a little baby with a full diaper. Little baby with a full diaper. I love that freaking... And that diaper is full of the crap that is this movie. <laughs> Truly. All right, let's move on. How did this make you feel? This made me feel angry at the fetishization of racialized violence and lack of substance. It's really well put. Um I, I echo that and will say it made me feel frustrated and disgusted. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's just comforting to know that we don't love every movie we see. Yeah. Because we do like a lot of the things we see. And every once in a while, it's nice to know we didn't like something. Yeah. I feel like we try to make an effort because we watch so many movies. We don't like to. This sounds harsh, but we don't like to waste our time. So we're usually pretty surface level research going into movies of what is good or regarded somewhat highly so that we aren't we aren't spending a lot of time watching stuff we wouldn't be interested in mm-hmm. this was not the week for that necessarily no. <laughs> but that is kind of our unspoken ethos of how we approach our movie watching um but only god forgives ain't it there's better shit out there go watch mr robot okay i felt like we needed a real change in pace from what was going on with that? Nice palate cleanser. Big palate cleanser. So our only horror movie of the week, surprising. Oh, We've no. watched a lot of horror movies, but they're going to be on next week's Northwest Fear Fest Rad Rap. I want to say, too, it was so funny last year when we were doing the show. We're like, we should not try to watch a lot of horror movies because people, some a lot of people don't like horror movies. And we need should we should be careful uh, to like balance stuff out. This year, we're like, don't give a shit. Horror movies. But yet this week, three out of the four are not horror movies. So the one horror movie we watched this week is The Blackening, a 2022 comedy horror thriller. It was directed by Tim Story and written by Tracy Oliver and Dwayne Perkins. It stars a big ensemble cast, and I'm going to name all of them because they're all important. Hell yeah. Grace Byers is Allison. Jermaine Fowler is Clifton. Melvin Gregg is King. X Mayo is Shanika. Dwayne Perkins, so he was the co-writer of the film. Oh, cool. Plays Dwayne. Antoinette Robertson plays Lisa, Cinqua Walls plays Namdi, and even though she's not in it very long, we love her from Insecure, uh, Yvonne Orji is Morgan. Um, not rad, rad, not 
uh, Rad Wreck, but Rad Wreck worthy. Go watch Insecure. Insecure is very good. Synopsis. Seven friends go away for the weekend and end up trapped in a cabin with a killer who has a vendetta. Will their street smarts and knowledge of horror movies help them stay alive? Probably not. <laughs> what, a, what a synopsis. A bit of a like tagline type synopsis. Mm-hmm. Um, we really wanted to see this when it was in theaters, but it was literally only in theaters for one week. And it was the week that I was marching, mar- marching, oh, <laughs> marking provincial exams. And when I mark provincial exams, it's like from early in the morning till the end of the day. And you don't get a weekend like it's straight through. And I'm just like totally zonked by the end of it because I've been marking like 50 plus papers in a row. And so we were like, oh, we'll wait until I'm done diplomas and go see it. And then it wasn't in theaters anymore. So Mm -hmm. that was really disappointing. Um, Even more disappointing. We went to watch this on stars, which we have access to. And stars does this weird thing where it like flashes green. And so we ended up just renting it. Whatever, happy to, happy to give this movie some money, but Stars is crap. They also, um, they're not their subtitle game is not very good as well. No, so you know, gross. Um, what did you think of the blackening? I was also very disappointed that we didn't get to see this in the theater because I think with the right crowd, this would have been so so much fun. But I also think with the wrong wrong crowd, it would have really been yeah. not fun and it's very hit or miss out there right now it is um but yeah saw the i think my first interaction or first gaining knowledge that this movie existed was seeing the poster in our movie theater uh with the title and the tagline we can't all die first yeah, so that's so good i i love that and if you're a horror movie fan if you're aware of like the tropes of horror movies that's just like oh my god this is so good this is so like this is atlanta level awareness yes and uh i i had a lot of fun with this i thought it was so smart i thought it was fun i love that it is rooted in the horror genre but i also love that it's a satire of the of the horror genre and i th- i feel like it's its cleverness and the way that it plays with the genre tropes throughout the film were just were pitch perfect. It's yeah, so I, it's so fun. I agree. I really I love a slasher and I love a slasher comedy. Or just like a horror comedy, but because slashers are so fun, like mm-hmm. you know, like I like a happy death day. I like a freaky what or just freaky, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. But I love a scream, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is definitely playing in that sandbox. The ensemble cast works so well together. Mm-hmm. The board game element of it is like smart and creepy and also awful. Yeah, I, it, it has a lot of pokes at politics in this, which are also excellent. And like history and specifically black history, which it, it just absolutely nails. And like through that use of like this board game idea, it was really interesting because as we were watching this, I was seeing a lot of like what felt to me as homage to Saw. Mm-hmm. Like there's a there's games involved. There's a lot of like the killers communicating through a TV and a lot of talk about like you have to play by the rules. And then Kevin Grutert, who, as if you've listened to our Saw Rad Rap, is kind of the one key person or one of the key people who's been involved in the Saw series in some capacity from the first film to the end, either as an editor or as a director, was thanked in the credits. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And like Lionsgate 
was the company behind this the, film. Yeah, the blackening. So, and they made all of the Saw films. And so yeah. I was reading that Tim Story, who had like horror is not what he's done. He mm-hmm. made like the Tom and Jerry movie. <laughs> yeah. And um, some other things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said that in making this, he had to kind of learn more about horror and that he really gained an appreciation mm-hmm. for how difficult it is to make a horror film and to balance that terror with everything else and um you can i think you can just see that he has a respect for the genre even if he wasn't necessarily like a huge horror fan before making it wow that's so interesting like coming at making a a horror film or a commentary on horror films from somebody who's not a diehard horror fan but a researched horror fan yeah that's so interesting. That's the impression to me. I got from the way that he's spoken about it, at least. Yeah. And not to say he like didn't like horror movies, but that wasn't his favorite thing, right? So it's mm-hmm. a little bit different than Wes Craven, who's been making horror films for a long time. Yeah. Right? It's it was a real departure from what he's made before. Um, and I mean that's interesting too, because like he co-wrote it with Dwayne Perkins. And I didn't really get um I didn't find a lot about like his part of it. Mm. Dwayne was one of my favorite characters. Mm-hmm. Um, really funny and like really stylish also yeah. we'll just say yeah, yeah. Dwayne and Allison were like the particular standouts for me who I really liked as characters um, and I think that this movie just hits that like sweet spot of subverting the tropes of a genre while also playing within them mm-hmm. which I think is so fun and especially when that happens in horror I'm such a fan of it yeah I agree I I love that this had fun. I love that it was smart. I love that it wasn't afraid to lean into the ridiculousness in some parts. I had so much more fun watching this than freaking Only God Forgives. Yeah, I just have in my notes in all capitals so much better than Only God Forgives. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so this is going to be a talking point for our last movie of the week. But this question of like, who is making a movie? What is the film about or who is it about? And who is the film for? And Mm -hmm. I think that the blackening is not for us. It's not made for a white audience. Yeah. But if a white audience or a non-black audience of any kind wants to watch it, they're welcome. They're welcomed in, mm-hmm. but it's not going to hold your hand. Yeah. This isn't a film. And I feel that way. Um, Issa Rae has spoken very well and very often about that with her show Insecure, which we brought up because Yvonne Orji plays Molly one of the main characters in Insecure where Issa Rae said, I'm making this for black people. Mm -hmm. If white people want to watch it, great. But like if there are references you don't get, that sucks for you. Like that's just, I'm making this movie for, Mm -hmm. for me and for people like me. And I feel like the blackening does the same thing. I have a quote from film critic, Raphael Monomayer, who said that this is quote, the first great horror parody of the post get out era. Mm -hmm. There is no toning down blackness or explaining things to a white audience. If you don't know how to play spades or what the black anthem is, ask a friend. Mm. And that, like, that's the way the movie approaches it. And I have such respect for that. And I think it's such a, it's so important that we have films like that. But then on that same note, we need to keep those films in fucking theaters longer. Yeah. Because I feel like it's these movies, like we were, Joyride was in films, in theaters a little bit longer, but we were rushing to try and see that before it was out of theaters. Mm -hmm. And this just, seems to be a pattern that I'm noticing where films kind of made by voices that aren't as often in cinema Mm -hmm. for their own community. Yeah. Like that's the important aspect of it is it's for folks in their own community are getting theatrical releases, but they're very, very short. Yeah. 
So keep those in theaters longer. And I think it's really important then that like folks who aren't a part of those communities try and see those as early as possible to show that there is a market for it. Mm-hmm. Like and you and I do try and do that. Damn diploma marking got in the way this time. Yeah. I think that keeping them in theaters longer, I think being more thoughtful about maybe including more trailers for it. Cause I don't remember even seeing trailers no, it at was, Cineplex. It was the poster. It. And then the posters were there forever and they didn't take them down. And I was like, is it coming back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, please, I really want to see it. So, you know, this was a long time coming. We really, really wanted to see this even before it was in theaters and, uh, I'm so glad we did, and I, I really liked it. I loved it, too. I'll, I'll watch it a dozen more times. I think it is super fun. Highly recommend seeking it out. How did the blackening make you feel? Happy to have films like this for smart horror fans who love the genre. How about you? It made me feel gratitude for this fun, smart slasher comedy. Hell yeah. On baby. the same page there, baby. Oh, man. We got a big one. Yeah, we firmly left the realm of horror. Oh, yeah. So I feel like our first and our fourth movie are like, there's some slight adjacency to horror. <laughs> this one, no. <laughs> no. I, I'm just like, this, you were at parent-teacher interviews. You, were, you weren't going to be getting home till a little bit later. We needed something that was short and sweet. And I wanted to watch something that was short, but also fucking great. So I chose the 1995 animation adventure comedy and staple of our childhood, <laughs> a goofy movie. It was directed by Kevin Lima. And writing credits are Jim Megan, Chris Matheson, Brian Pemmental, uh, Curtis Armstrong, and John Doolittle. Starring the voices of Bill Farmer as Goofy, Jason Marsden as Max, Jim Cummings as Pete, Kelly Martin as Roxanne, Rob Paulson as PJ, uh, Wallace Shawn as Principal Mazer, Mazer, uh, Jenna Von Oy as Stacy, and this was kind of nuts. Polly Shore is not listed anywhere in the IMDb for this. Oh, could this be a like, um, what's her name? Kathy Turner is that her name? Kathleen Turner. Kathleen Turner, Jessica Rabbit situation. Maybe, but uh, Polly Shore is. Bobby. And uh, don't forget Tevin Campbell as I was just getting it. Tev- Sorry, I'll let you do it. <laughs> Tev- Tevin Campbell as Powerline. Synopsis. When Max makes a preposterous promise to a girl he has a crush on, his chances his chances to fulfilling it seem hopeless when he is dragged onto a cross-country trip with his, with his embarrassing father Goofy. We'll just say his father Goofy. Okay, let's get into it. What do you think of the Goofy movie? A goofy I movie. I love a Goofy movie. Yeah. This is this is one of those movies that like I, I can't explain it, but it feels like maybe when you're watching it as a kid it f- and then you get older, you feel like maybe not everybody was watching it. Like it feels like maybe it was just yours. Mm. And then you find out that like everybody else loves it, too. <laughs> yeah. Especially I, anybody that's a millennial. hundred yeah. percent. I watched this movie all the time. Mm. Had it on VHS in that beautiful big puffy, puffy case. white case glossy finish you know <laughs> yeah oh just the sound of like popping one of those open oh baby yeah so it's just like nostalgic candy it's so good like yeah. i my letterbox review said no notes yeah no notes it's so good it's one of the it, it's it's one of the goats 
it is it is a masterpiece. I think so. It's interesting because I'm like, is it is this one of those movies that objectively isn't, but just if you watched it as a kid, it is? Because mileage seems to vary on Letterboxd. Like, mm. you know, some people really don't like it, but I personally think it has everything. I think, first of all, the songs fucking rock. Yeah, there isn't a sleeper. No. In terms of the music in this. They are so catchy, so good, so fun. I like would totally go to an a goofy movie sing along. Oh yeah. That'd be so fun. And even beyond that, there's so many just like quotable lines like who's your favorite possum? And like basically anything Polly Shore says. <laughs> oh yeah. Leaning Tower of Cheese. <laughs> like it's so so good. Um but then on top of that it's like it's very relatable this idea of being a teenager who's starting to have crushes and doesn't know how to navigate that and is struggling with communication and your parents are trying to figure out like what's going on with you as a teenager and there's just this like barrier like that's very relatable it's such a strong story of growth for the parent and the child yeah and i think as a kid i really related to max Mm -hmm. and as an adult i kind of can relate to both of them you know i can see both sides of it and how beautifully the film like explores each character through their relationship with each other. Yeah. It's an ultimate dad movie. Let's well, that's be what I was going to say. I'm like, is this the birthplace of our podcast? <laughs> because it's so deeply rooted in our childhood and it is rife with complicated dad stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, this is a real, like not all dads have to be bad kind of thing. Cause like, <laughs> yeah. he's a really good dad. You know, and there's some complicated stuff in here because at the end, during that like beautiful song, uh, Nobody Else But You, we were like, shit, are you Goofy and I'm Max? That's a little complicated. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just so good. And like, it's got some like creepy moments. It's got some really sad moments. It's got some really like triumphant moments. It's just phenomenal. And like some like really quietly beautiful moments. Yes. Like the high dad soup shit. Oh, as soon as it like, started happening i was like oh fuck i dad soup (laughs) i'm gonna like cry it's so i also like i think the animation is really beautiful like one of the things that really stood out to me in watching it this time is the way that they create light that they like especially um Mm. when the map will like Mm. come out and you've got that like red Mm -hmm. or when they're at the hotel motel and it's like got this kind of like green watery Oh, like it's it's really beautifully done. Oh, yeah. I fucking love there's a match cut that happens where Goofy is laying on a bed and then the the camera turns to him being upright sitting in the car with the same expression on yeah. his face. It's like that doesn't need to be there. Like, that's yeah, there's so some, cool. There's some really clever stuff um, when Max is first doing his like the the thing that he does that leads to his preposterous promise. There's some really strong stuff going on with like depth of field and like like Max's point of view of where Roxanne is in the audience. Yeah. That's like really clever. And like, you know, when an animated film is using animation to create what would be camera angles, what would be all of those techniques done in a non-animated film, I'm so appreciative of it. Well, it even does the Jaws dolly zoom. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's, it's nuts. Like, and there's no doubt that they're referencing famous films throughout and we've probably even missed some of the references yeah it's just it's just my god brilliant perfect one of my favorite movies of all time and you said too like right after we finished it like it is 
a perfect film in that there's not a wasted minute in it. It's an no. hour and 18 minutes. Nothing goes on too long. None of the side characters are just fluff. Like they're realized characters that you understand who they are and where they fit into this whole thing. I love how much of a wing person Stacy is to Roxanne and PJ is to Max. Still don't know if PJ and his dad are cats. No, I haven't quite figured that out. I don't think so. Also, you talked about when we were watching this that like the opening scene really freaked you out. Like there's some great nightmare imagery in it. Yeah, when I was a kid. Yeah. And and in that nightmare imagery, there's like one of the propulsive themes of the film is like this fear that we'll become like our parents. Mm-hmm. Which is like shown visually at the beginning of the film. Like it's also a smart movie. Like thematically it's rich. I don't know. I think it's great. Kevin Lima said about making this film that um, this is a quote from him. Instead of just keeping Goofy one-dimensional as he's been in the past, we wanted to give an emotional side that would add to the emotional arc of the story. We wanted the audience to see his feelings instead of just his antics. Mm. Mission accomplished. Well, and I feel like they give his antics so much more nuance. A misstep they almost made, though, is they started, they asked Bill Farmer to, like, record in a non-Goofy voice. And they did some lines like that. And he was like, this is a mistake, guys. And then they realized, yes, it was a mistake. And they redid the lines. Well, there's something even more profoundly heartbreaking when Goofy is upset, but still has like the Goofy voice. Because like this is a voice and like a beacon of joy from the Disney family. Yeah. And to see Goofy feeling feelings that aren't good feelings. Really powerful. Really sad. Um, Just a little like trivia thing that I thought was really uh, cool. So Jason Marsden doesn't do the singing voice of Max. Mm. The singing voice of Max is done by somebody named Aaron Lore, who is Indina Menzel's romantic partner. Adele Dazeem herself. Adele Dazeem herself. I'm like those two must, do you think they do little like ditties in the kitchen? Oh yeah. Or do you think like. She'll be doing like let it go and he'll be like I've been laughing. <laughs> I can't remember how the song goes right now. But I'm not going to laugh anymore. Or do you think that they're like at the point where like if we're singing, we're getting paid for it. Even in the kitchen. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Or they're just like, I don't want to sing. I do that all day. I was like, oh, those little singers, little singers shacking up. That's kind of nice. We need to talk about one of the best things that this film has inspired in popular culture, recent popular culture, which is episode eight of season four of Atlanta. Yeah, it's phenomenal. The episode's called The Goof Who Sat By The Door. I don't want to talk too much about it because if you are watching Atlanta, like this episode kind of comes like a surprise, like episode eight of season three of Twin Peaks. But essentially it is documenting, faux documenting where this movie came from. Yes. And you could totally just watch that episode and not watch any other Atlanta. Totally. Or you could watch that episode and be like, wow, Atlanta seems great. And then watch all of Atlanta. It gives no context to what the overall show of Atlanta is like. But it is awesome. If you like a goofy movie, you should really watch that episode. The goofy sat by the door. If you haven't seen Atlanta, I recommend the whole thing. But that episode in a pairing with a goofy movie, just phenomenal. Brilliant. This movie's amazing. I think it's objectively perfect. It was it didn't perform well at the box office, but all us little millennials have like created a cult following around it so much so that in 2015 um, they had a bunch of the cat like the voice cast reconvene for like a, an expo in California that they like didn't think was going to 
have that many people come and it was sold out like it, people showed up in droves and they had to turn people away mm-hmm. this movie means a lot to a lot of people i'm so glad you picked it i love it i'm right there with you how to make you feel it makes me feel a deep nostalgic comfort for this childhood gem you always happy to revisit this childhood masterpiece all right you got a big daddy here with some big daddy things to say we surprisingly, because this wasn't a movie we really were like super keen on seeing, but we were invited by a pal to go see it on opening night in IMAX. And we thought, you know, if we're going to see it, might as well be topical about it. And if we're going to see it anytime, might as well see it opening night in IMAX, which we'll talk about was a big mistake. Um, <laughs> we saw Killers of the Flower Moon. It's a brand new 2023 crime drama history movie. It was directed by Martin Scorsese and it was written by Scorsese and Eric Roth. And it's based on a book. Um, I think it's kind of like a novelized nonfiction. I'm not quite hundred percent sure by David Gran stirs a lot of people, but I'm gonna start with Lily Gladstone because she's the MVP as Molly Burkhart. Um, and then as her family, uh, there's Tantu Cardinal as Lizzie Q, Cara Jade Myers as Anna, Janae Collins as Rita, Jillian Dion as Minnie. And then, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio as Ernest Burkhart, Robert De Niro as William Hale, and Jesse Plemons as Tom White. There are a whole lot of other people in the movie too, but those are the people that I am naming right now. The synopsis of this is when oil is discovered in 1920s Oklahoma under Osage Nation land, the Osage people are murdered one by one until the FBI steps in to unravel the mystery. Kind of a strange synopsis, mm. considering the like pacing of the film and where those different elements occur, but that's the synopsis. What did you think of Killers of the Flower Moon? I was really struggling on where to start with this, like in terms of us talking about it. Do we want to start with a theater experience? I actually thought it might be worthwhile to talk about our history with Scorsese. That's a good place to start. Um, My mom loves Scorsese movies. That doesn't surprise me. Growing up, she watched, she really liked Casino. She watched a okay. lot, a lot of that. That also doesn't surprise me. Um, she loves watching like casino YouTube and, and, footage. <laughs> and like by proxy, I've kind of seen casino. Like I'm just like in the room while it's been on. Same same kind of thing with like Goodfellas. I've, I saw Shutter Island in the theater. But yeah, I, I, I just I'm not really a Scorsese guy in that like. If I if I hear that name, I'm not excited about it. I'm not like, oh, man, I got to see the new Scorsese. I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm not head over heels for him or his work or anything like that. And just through his, especially more recently, his casting choices and some of the projects that he's done have just been stuff I'm really not interested in. Yeah. It's so, this is so interesting to me because I obviously know the name Martin Scorsese, but I don't think I realized that I, knew so many of the films that he'd made like I knew what they were Mm -hmm. and yet I had seen almost none of them so you know in going to watch this movie I was like oh what Scorsese movies have I seen and I've only seen Shutter Island and I didn't even realize he had made that and even in seeing that I saw it in the theater my sisters wanted to go to it I've only seen it once I think I liked it I, I, and I only went because again I didn't know it was Scorsese but I'm like this seems horror adjacent yes exactly so like I really was drawn to it as like kind of this more like mystery thriller type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then in looking at his filmography, I was like, oh, like I've actively been uninterested in a lot of these. Like I was actively uninterested in The Wolf of Wall Street. I did not want to see The Departed. I didn't care to see The Irishman. I've seen I'm uninterested in Goodfellas. Like mm-hmm. looking at his filmography, there's a lot that I'm like, oh, I've never wanted to see this. Now, on the other side, there are some of his films that I've been interested in seeing. Like I want to see Silence. I want to see The Last Temptation of Christ. I really wanted to see Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore before it left Criterion Channel. But we didn't. I want to see that After Hours movie. Because I, yeah. I like. So, you know, and I want to see Taxi Driver to like get what the deal is. But in looking at this, I'm like, oh, I actually really haven't seen much of his films. And we went and saw this movie with our pal Elliot, who has seen a lot more Scorsese films and is a lot more aware of like Scorsese's style. And Elliot said like Shutter Island is like a, a very different project for him. Mm. So I just really wasn't familiar with what a Scorsese film is like. Mm-hmm. I think we both also had some reservations about the subject matter of the film and just representation, both of history and of indigenous peoples in the film that like made us a little bit nervous. I'm also like not one for a three and a half hour movie mm-hmm. for the most part, I'm much more into a three and a half hour movie if it's like a blockbuster. Cause it's just going to be fun and dumb and stupid. Mm. Like I, John wick four was fine. Um, or like a real intentional, like slow burn, slow cinema type movie. Yeah. I'm not one for like historical epics. Yeah. And anyone who's listened to this show knows that I have issues with biopics in general. And mm-hmm. I, not that I would call this a biopic, but just it's, it's dabbling in. There. Yeah. I, that I struggle with anything that's like representing history. Yeah. There was literally one reason I wanted to see this movie and it was Lily Gladstone. I fell in love with her in, um, first cow. But also, or what was the, what was the Certain other? women. Certain women. She's in both of them, yeah. Yeah. But like certain women was really like, oh man, Lily Gladstone's a powerhouse. Yeah. And that, that was the only reason I wanted to see this movie. The second reason that got added was I wanted to ha- have an informed opinion about this movie. Yeah. Because I feel with the name Scorsese attached much like a Chrissy no-no. That's where the <laughs> the film bros come out in droves and kind of overtake the conversation about this film. Yeah. And I wanted us to have a voice in that that was a bit of a alternative voice. Yeah, and not just a, like, I have reservations about it, but I saw it and this is what I think about it. Yeah. So one of the trickiest things about this is, like I said, we were like, if we're going to go see this, because it's easily a film that we might have just never seen, as I have basically never seen any other Scorsese movie. <laughs> but it was like, if we're going to go see it, yeah, opening night IMAX seems like the right time to see it. But it was legitimately the worst movie theater experience of our lives. Yep. Like the worst. And we've had some bad ones. We've had some stinkers. People, you've heard about it. But mm-hmm. this was the worst. And I mean, it doesn't, it's not made any better by the fact that it's a very long movie, right? So yeah. you're having to endure this for a very long time. It it was it was a trial. Yeah, it was for me. Cell phone use, including our pal Elliot, saw somebody literally Wikipediaing like the original historical story. Yeah, a um, lot of cell phone use, like th- riddled throughout the theater, uh, talking, 
loud talking and not just one. There was two really bad offenders, but like talking throughout the whole theater. Mm-hmm. Um, people fell asleep. People fell asleep and were snoring. Were snoring really loud. Somebody brought a baby. Somebody brought a baby. It started crying. Uh, the people that were talking consistently at one point, another theater goer yelled, can you stop talking so loud? Which prompted those people to yell, shut the fuck up. And then that guy eventually got up in a huff, went and got theater staff. But by the time the theater staff came, the two people that had been talking the whole time fell asleep. Yeah. And when we left and we stayed till the end of the credits, when we left, they were like dead asleep. Like theater staff were going to have to like touch them to wake them up. Those people also threw nachos nachos. and popcorn across the theater at one point. So it was awful. Like, and I said this in my review of the movie on Letterboxd and you said, you really liked the language I used, which is any movie, but particularly a three and a half hour movie, you need to sink into it. You need to like get into the rhythm of it and just be like embraced by it so that Mm -hmm. you lose sense of time. You need to get in a flow with the movie. And all of that made it impossible. It made it impossible. I was actually, things got progressively worse with the audience throughout the movie. And the first third of the movie, I enjoyed a lot more. And so everything that we say from this point on about the movie has to be put in tandem with the fact that we saw it in a, in horrible conditions. Like it was so bad that they were standing at the theater after telling people to go to guest services and get reimbursed. Yeah. And they actually like double reimbursed us and our friends. They gave us each two tickets to be used anytime within the next year on any kind of movie. Well, and they were very aware of it because as soon as we walked out of the first door for the theater, there was somebody already standing there of like, we're so sorry for this experience. Go to guest services and they'll get you sorted. Yeah. Yeah. And this wasn't the only thing either. Like we're seeing reviews like our our friend Isaac said that there was a full physical assault. Like somebody punched somebody else in their Yeah. And I think the story there was... Somebody was on their phone having a conversation, like talking on the phone, and another another person asked them to stop. This is in Calgary. Mm-hmm. And then the husband partner of the person who's talking on the phone starts recording the person who's asking the other person to stop, and then a physical fight happened. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know what the hell is up with this. And then we heard yesterday when we were at a def- different movie. Our friend Elliot ran into a friend who had seen this just in like a regular theater, not an IMAX theater, and said it was completely ruined by the Taylor Swift era's concert being in like a theater that shared a wall because it's a pretty quiet movie. Mm-hmm. Like oh, yeah. IMAX wasn't loud enough, mm-hmm. but at least we weren't competing with anything other than the idiots talking in the movie. But I guess that like you could just hear the Taylor Swift concert and probably the people in the Taylor oh, Swift yeah. concert through the whole movie. So... Honestly, I have to say right now, if you want to see this movie, maybe wait until it's on Apple. I just remembered the last thing that happened. And it was the, if you know us, you love, we love to sit through the end of the credits and just let the film linger with us. I mean, first of all, we couldn't get out there fast enough. We still stayed, but we wanted to leave so badly. But the last shot of the film is a particular, it's one of the most memorable parts of the movie for us. It's pretty powerful. It's really beautiful. A person stood up before the credits even started that this powerful moment was still happening. They stood up in the dark and turned on the flashlight on their phone to start leaving. Yeah. And the movie wasn't even done yet. No. And, you know, we're not going to speak because spoiler free and, and this is a brand new movie, especially what that final like coda scene is. But it was particularly disrespectful to do that in that scene. Yeah. 
really, really upsetting. So yeah, it was a really shitty theater experience. I want to start with some of the things I liked about the movie because there are things I really liked about the movie. Yeah, let's let's go there. First of all, I think Scorsese's intentions are in the right place. Yeah. I did a lot in my letterbox review comparing this to like a To Kill a Mockingbird, where if we think about the question of who is making a piece of art, who are they making it about and who are they making it for? I think, and I am echoing and we'll put a clip to this, but Christopher Cote, who's an Osage, he was an Osage consultant on the film. He says this film was not made for an Osage audience. Mm -hmm. So in echoing his thoughts, I see this film as being made by a white man. I think it's about the violence white people do to indigenous do and have done to indigenous people. Mm -hmm. But I think it is about white people's violence, which I think is a very appropriate lens for Scorsese to be looking at it. Yeah, Scorsese should tell the evil white man's story. Yeah, like that. I actually I have a lot of respect for the fact that that's what he did. Yes. I think that he's confronting something in himself and like his own, our own, like we are white people. Mm -hmm. We are white people in the prairies. We Mm -hmm. are white people in a place where oil has been struck on indigenous territory. Mm -hmm. You know, he's asking a white audience to confront that. So he's doing that, but he's doing it for a white audience. That means this movie is made for us, but I think it's really important when a film is made for you, but it concerns other people who aren't you to be reflective of the way that, you were engaging with that film and to be really open to hearing what folks who are in the film, their communities are represented in the film, but the film is not made by about or for them. I think it's really important to hear their voices. Absolutely. It's really well documented that Scorsese changed the focus of this, that the book and the original screenplay were more of like an FBI, like Jesse Plemons character was the lead. Mm -hmm. I think it was absolutely great that he changed that focus um it's well documented that he worked closely with osage people many osage people like tons of osage people were employed in front of and behind the scenes which is um, excellent and so many of those folks have said like he was so considerate about making sure that like the way that osage people live is presented um and there was one quote i read about like uh, woman who was on set as a consultant and said she actually wouldn't hold her cup like that. And he changed those things. So like, there's a lot of real attention to detail in like who these people are. Mm-hmm. And I think all of that's really beautiful. Like he clearly cared. Yeah. There's a, and there's a beautiful touch near the end of the movie where you can tell it's very much coming from him. Yeah. And I actually, it's, so this is where that movie theater experience really sucks because there were some key moments in the movie that literally took my breath away yes. that I thought were stunning. Yeah. Most of which involved Lily Gladstone. <laughs> yes. Um, or some more like abstract visual yes. stuff going on or like, you know, some break from realism. Mm-hmm. But there is a, a moment near the end of the film that feels very, very reflective from Scorsese that I think if it hadn't been for this theater experience would have really impacted me. Yeah. But I was just ready for the movie to end. Yes. Um, And I wasn't like in it. So I think he's doing some really reflective stuff in here. Um, Like I said, the first hour I was really compelled. I think Lily Gladstone is just phenomenal in this. And so many of the other Osage actors, like her family, who I named, I think do such fantastic jobs. So many. Yeah. Like just so many people 
but specifically Lily Gladstone absolutely crush it crush in this there's movie. a couple scenes where like the Osage people are meeting in council yeah that I thought were the dialogue was phenomenal I just thought those scenes were such powerhouses as were also scenes where I noticed a lot of people taking their phones out which says something well yeah absolutely but it's in those moments where I'm just like the dialogue that's happening makes such a clear division between the Osage people's way of life yeah, and these white fucks yeah. way of life and the way that they think and go about their lives. And I think that Scorsese, with the support of all of these Osage folks and Osage consultants, does that really well. Like I really, there's so much about the film that I appreciated. I think his casting of Lily Gladstone is phenomenal. Uh, I read uh, a quote from Leonardo DiCaprio where he was kind of recounting that Lily Gladstone was considering, and this is not from her, it's from him. So take mm-hmm. it with a grain of salt that she was considering no longer acting because she wasn't getting like enough roles or roles that would like do what she needed them to do. And then she got a invite to a zoom meeting it was during the pandemic with Scorsese and Caprio said, quote, there was no reading. Marty just instinctively knew Lily was the one. There was a truthfulness in her eyes that he saw even over a computer screen. I've never known him to meet somebody and then immediately afterwards have this gravitational pull and instinct to say, let's not wait another minute. And I think she is unfortunately not positioned as the beating heart of the film. And yet Lily Gladstone's performance manages to make her the beating heart of the film anyway. From that same piece that you referenced from the the consultant the Osage consultant on the film I echo what he said in that yes I think that Martin Scorsese telling the evil white man story is the right thing to do but I've seen the evil white man story and Molly's story is way more intriguing to me I want to see Molly's story and I don't think Scorsese is necessarily the one to do that Molly is so, such a compelling person and was conveyed so compellingly by Lily Gladstone. I, I wanted that story. By the end of this movie, I just wanted that story. And I think that's the complicated thing because that's, I wrote it very long and I, and I thought about it very deeply. It's, Letter- really, it's really good. I linked to it in my letterbox <laughs> review. Letterbox review on this where I just talked about like, you know, my own feelings about the lens of who makes a movie about who and for who sure i'm fucking up some whoms in there um (laughs) come for me ross geller (laughs) and particularly like that's something i need to think about as an english teacher like Mm -hmm. you know i have a responsibility in my classroom to you know bring the text that we study in and think about how we study them and the lens through which we talk about them and my hands are sometimes tied based on like what i'm required to do or what we have the money to bring in as like physical resources and and what like our district will approve of so i think about those things a lot Mm. um and quite a few folks seem to get defensive to some degree in the sense of like me having this conversation being like a criticism of the film and i actually am not criticizing the film per se Mm -hmm. i think scorsese did what he needed to do and i actually don't think he should tell Molly's story. I agree. I mean, he's telling a part of Molly's story and I think that he has a lot of compassion and desire. And I think he has a lot of anger about like what happened to her and her, her family and then the Osage people in general. And I appreciate that he kind of sticks with his 
confrontation of like white violence. But to what you just said and to what um, Christopher uh, Cote, the one of the Osage consultants says, I just personally want Molly's story. Yeah. So it's more of a matter of personal preference that like, there are a lot of folks, um, people in our families who I think would actually get a lot out of this movie mm-hmm. and it's for them. It's for white people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but I'm ready for Molly's story. Yeah. And so that's not a denigration of the film. It's just, there's something I want that this film can't give me despite what I appreciate about what this film does give me. Yeah. Um, I want to read though a couple things that different Osage folks who worked on the film have said, because I think looking at both sides of that is important. Mm -hmm. As I've already mentioned, like mostly across the board, positive things to say about listening, bringing like the degree of deep listening that happened between Osage folks and other folks in the film. Um, the desire to get details of Osage life correct and how that was done well. Addie Roanhorse, who is the great-great-granddaughter of Henry Roan, who is one of the people who was killed in real life, said that the movie's been hard to process and that seeing the violence in particular was difficult. And this was something I, if I was going to have a key criticism of the film from a representational standpoint, I struggled with some of the lingering on dead and brutalized Indigenous bodies, particularly Indigenous women. Yeah, and I feel like it felt, I mean, for me, it, it felt similar to what Nicholas Winding Refn was doing yeah. in Only God Forgives by using really harsh language to establish that a character is evil. Yeah. He uses hyper-realistic violence in this to depict how deplorable what these yeah. people are doing to the Osage people. And like you said, lingers a bit too long to establish what I felt was to establish that these people are bad people. And I think of that in comparison to how the film till doesn't show the violence. Yes. And yet, yeah. I mean, you see the aftermath of the violence in till, and that's very much out of respect for Emmett till's mother's real choice in real life. Yeah. Um, but that was one thing that I was really like, I am uncomfortable with the amount of lingering, on bodies. There's a couple moments where particularly with um, Molly's mother, that some really beautiful stuff around death is done in a more abstract way. And I kind of wish that was present as a counterpoint Mm -hmm. more frequently. So Addie Roanhorse, who is a descendant of somebody who was killed and worked on the film said, quote, it's heavy. It's like somebody hands you something heavy and walks off. Everybody's standing there going, what is this? What do we do with this? And I think we need to listen to that. Yeah. She also said that, and I think this is another really important part, and I I agree about it, that having a, quote, powerhouse like Scorsese represent the community, include the community, tell this story, lends truth to a secretive past. So she said, quote, my grandparents didn't talk about it. They feared retaliation. I want my daughter's generation to speak, tell our stories, and be proud of who we are. And so a lot of folks, Osage folks included, are saying that, like, well, maybe not all of the representation is something that's easy or something that they 100% can get behind. They, uh, Somebody named Gianna uh, Seek said, and I really liked this, that um, she hopes that this opens doors for Osage people to now tell their version of this story and also stories about where they're at currently. So she said, quote, uh, we are meant to be storytellers, and she's speaking about Osage people, and I feel like it's very important for us to continue telling our history and what's going on in our communities. 
And there was a lot of talk. Uh, so Gianna Seek, also somebody named Brandy Lemon, and then Addie Roanhouse all spoke kind of about how a lot of this has been secret and how a lot of folks who aren't Osage or Indigenous have denied that this happened. And so having somebody with the resources and reach of Scorsese saying, yes, this happened, I believe this happened, and I deplore that it happened, is important. Yeah. So this is complicated. It is. Like it's not, for me, it's not a five out of five or a half star out of five. I didn't rate this movie because I just feel complicated about it. Yeah. I feel that it's doing a lot of really important things. Mm-hmm. I feel like in some areas I struggle with the way it does it. Yeah. In some spots, I think it does it so beautifully. And I'll come back to, I think Scorsese chose the right lens, but I now want him to take the money he makes from this movie and help in Osage people and indigenous people tell stories. That's what I want him to do. Yeah. Like just I have so many thoughts, like thinking about some of those things that those people said that they want their, the people of just this generation to be able to speak up about these things that they were so afraid to speak about in the past. And, you know, I, and please feel free to check me in me saying this, but thinking about a comparison to Oppenheimer, which is another film dealing with some very not great white people dealing in something that leads to a mass genocide. Christopher Nolan made the decision to stay very separated from the people yeah. that were being killed in this mass genocide. Yeah. Whereas I think that something Scorsese is doing more thoughtfully here is putting those those people in the spotlight and yeah. putting them, making them fully fleshed out characters and complex characters in some regard. But even with that said, yeah, still I'm riddled with complicated feelings. And so this is where everything. in my original review, I talked about To Kill a Mockingbird, which is this very commonly taught text and still commonly banned text. Um, and I love To Kill a Mockingbird. I do. I love it. I read it. I read it myself when I was 15 and I studied it in school. But when my sister was 15, who's six years older than me, so I was nine, she read it out loud to me. So I actually heard it for the first time when I was nine. And then we watched the movie together. Like she was doing a little like, novel study with me um but that book was written for me harper lee was a white woman who wrote a book about white people's interrogation of race relations for a white audience and in 1960 that was really needed Mm -hmm. and in some ways it's still really needed now but i can understand that that book was written for me and understand how some black folks and other folks might be like i actually really don't like that book and here's why and both of those things can be true at once and i don't have to get upset that other folks don't like it. I can reflect on where Harper Lee's gaps are, where her intentions are in the right place, where things that she wrote about and the way that she wrote them helped me to have a more aware social justice lens and also acknowledge kind of where she stumbles. Yeah. And And I, and, and then I can also like, so one of the language I was using with a colleague was, I, lo- I really do love To Kill a Mockingbird. I think it's, I think it was really important in 1960. I think for white audiences, it made an impact. I think it has big gaps. Yeah. And I think that it's a literary force, like from just a literary perspective, it's incredibly well-written. Mm-hmm. But I think we, I think we're past it now. There are black folks telling stories in their voices that we can explore now. And we as teachers need to help that mic be passed from Harper Lee to other people. 
And so we're doing that. Like most of us aren't teaching To Kill a Mockingbird anymore in my school. And that's been hard because we had to get new books and convince the, the, you know, our school. It wasn't very hard, but make sure that they'll buy some new copies of books. And I think there's a place for both of those stories. There's a place for To Kill a Mockingbird and there's a place for The Hate You Give and Brother and other stories like that. And I feel the same way about this. I do think this movie has a purpose. I think a lot of people in our family need to see this movie and need to think about what this movie has to say. But I also want to see Indigenous people telling Indigenous stories and I want them to stay in theaters for longer than a week. I want them to get wide releases. I want them to be championed and given funding. And I hope that a movie like this and the people involved in it can help make that happen. And I think that we can acknowledge what's really strong about this movie, both from a like film perspective and from a social justice perspective, while also acknowledging that Martin Scorsese has his own gaps. Yeah. Both of those things can happen at once. We don't need to unapologetically love or hate something. Yeah. That, and that's where I think you've put that very, very eloquently and very well. I think that this feel, I feel like this film is very much the To Kill a Mockingbird in a time where we still need a To Kill a Mockingbird. But I think for you and me, we're we're ready for what comes next from yeah. the people that aren't the Martin Scorsese's. Yeah. So complicated. Um, word of the day with this movie. Yeah. It's, you know, I think it's so much more thoughtful, intentional than something like only God forgives, which I just didn't like. Yeah. Actually, I think I liked this movie and I think it's a real shame that our theater experience probably pushed more of the negativity yeah. for me. This conversation has helped a lot actually for me. Yeah. Like I, I, I'm not, I just think I, it's there's too much going on in this film for me to assign it a number. Yeah. Like, I think it's, I think this is an important film. And mm-hmm. I think the dialogue that it can create is important. I think we should listen to what Osage people are saying. And the complicated things, like not just focusing on Osage people who have said, yeah, I don't like this about it. Or people who have said, it's great, I love it, which some of them have. But looking at the nuance in between of, this is something I really appreciate. And this is something I'm struggling with. And being open to listening to that complication and having a conversation about it. Yeah. That's what we need. hundred And I personally, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know Martin Scorsese. I've only seen two of his movies, but I think he would want that. I think he would want a dialogue. I think he'd be happy to know that his film is creating conversation, not correction, mm-hmm. <laughs> not, oh, let me tell you this or, oh, you're thinking the wrong way, but a dialogue. And dialogues are messy, but that's, I think, what's most important. So, Yeah. And if fucking Lily Gladstone can win an Oscar for this. That'd be awesome. That'd be amazing. She's phenomenal. And, you know, it's just, it's a shame because I don't really think I need or want to see this movie again. And we just didn't have good conditions of when we saw it. Maybe I'll feel differently. Maybe in like a couple months when it's like free on the streamer, I'll be like, yeah, you know what? Let's revisit it like at home. Yeah, because I don't, I really don't think that theater going audiences can handle three plus hour movies. No, especially when they're like slower and. Yeah. And and I mean, there's a degree of which Scorsese is asking particularly white audiences to confront some of these really nasty things and maybe talking and going on your phone as a defense mechanism, even subconsciously so. Right. Mm-hmm. And. You know, I wouldn't blame any folks who are indigenous for also responding in those kinds of ways to seeing this kind of violence on screen. Right. It's really complicated. And 
you know, I would encourage people who want to see this movie to like think about what the right condition for seeing this is, depending on like what they're how they're going to react to some of this stuff. And maybe, maybe that is watching it at home. Yeah. Um, it's very long. There's a lot going on in it. I have one very like not complicated thing I need to say about it, which is that I found out in reading about this, that Jesse Plemons turned down, he was offered the role of dupe in Nope. And he turned oh. it down to make this movie. And I'm so glad that happened. hundred percent. Stephen <laughs> Young is a fucking goat. I don't know that that Jesse Plemons is a good actor, but so no, no disrespect against him, but I think it would have been a very different movie with him in that role. hundred percent. Um, that's the last thing I have to say about Killers <laughs> of the Flower Moon after this very complicated conversation. I'll, I'll say the last thing. Okay. I cannot imagine Martin Scorsese on a Zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, seems very weird to me. Like this prolific guy is just also having the same connectivity issues I have every day. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. How did Killers of the Flower Moon make you feel? Filled to the absolute brim with complicated emotions. How did it make you feel? It made me feel an appreciation for the intention and the craft. I think clearly Scorsese is a talented filmmaker. Mm -hmm. That also wrestled with my complex feelings about representations of history. Who try to fit that all in the graphic? Well, I mean, there's no Scorsese stuff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was just me adding on. But very well put, nonetheless. Thank you. Yeah, I like if if you if you haven't yet, follow Kylie on Letterboxd because her review of this I think is very well articulated and very smart and very good. And uh, people are popping off in the comments. Oh Christ! Yes, I used my first block. It was uh, I usually don't do that, but I had a very long week at work, and I couldn't. Taylor, your social media. For healthy, positive conversations. Yes. Yeah. I love a dialogue, but I don't want to fight. Yeah. Love a dialogue. Don't love a mansplain. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's talk about dads. The dads of the week. All right. Some heavy hitters for consideration. Who did you pick for a bad dad nominee? I picked William Hale. Robert De Niro's character. Yeah. There was, the to me, line. there was two major contenders this week i went with the other one yeah I, and i'm i'm i feel like you're gonna explain it really well and yeah, i don't know i only have four words <laughs> well i all i wrote was he's an absolute piece of human garbage like yep. there's a level of it's hard to talk about because i don't want to spoil anything although it's also based on history and you can read about it and whatnot um but hale is a racist ruthless greedy soulless at least as depicted in the film piece of human garbage who like whoever he has to harm to get what he wants he will and whoever he has to manipulate including like his own family mm -hmm. um and he sucks and that's what i have to say about that yeah i pick crystal from only god forgives oh i thought you were gonna pick Ernest. okay mm, uh, also a good choice i just think crystal is Nasty, vile, obscene, a pure example of not just a bad dad, but a deplorable dad. I wouldn't want somebody like this as my parent who has their own expectations and the expectations are firmly rooted in negativity and filth and guck and nastiness. I feel like we got two solid choices. Yeah, they both suck. I don't know what to do. Um... 
I'd say because it's topical and I don't want to give Only God Forgives or Nicholas Winding Refn <laughs> any more eyes than he currently has, because especially since learning he's a little piss boy about, about this movie, I think that going with Hale okay. is right. So William H. Hale, don't, don't be, be our dad. dad. If we don't have the same rad dad, I think I might cry. Okay, three, two, one, one goofy. goofy. Of course. He's fundamentally a good dad. He embraces his growth. He's willing to adapt his dynamic with his son throughout the film. And he stands up for what he knows is right. There's a particular scene with a conversation between him and his friend Pete. I I use air quotes around friend. (laughs) But he stands up for himself. He stands up for his son. He loves his son unconditionally. He loves himself unconditionally. And that's just it. He's... He's kind and fun and 100% goofy. And also kind of like doesn't give a fuck about gender norms. Oh, no. Like he is his own. The first time we see him, he has towel wrapped around <laughs> like up to his chest and like his <laughs> towel wrapped around like his head. Like Pete is an example of like bad dad toxic masculinity. And Goofy's like, no, masculinity can be vulnerable and sweet and goofy, right? Like yeah. I can be the kind of man that I want to allow you to be which is whatever kind of man you're going to be i just think goofy's wholeheartedly himself he has a emotional vulnerability that models for his son how he can learn to have that too when max is struggling to Mm -hmm. be emotionally vulnerable and i think throughout the movie max through the modeling of his father learns like it's okay to be honest about how you are feeling Mm -hmm. um, and to try to communicate those things i also think goofy is willing to see where he's been wrong or where he centered himself too much and like remind himself that as the father he's there to take care of Max mm-hmm. and like to help Max grow into like a confident and true version of himself. And I just think we, I put this in my review, but we should all be so lucky to have a dad like Goofy. Absolutely. I just want to speak to this one particular moment that I feel like I didn't notice it until this, this watch through, but I think it just speaks to the openness and the kindness and the wanting to share his love with everybody, which is when he first reveals the map to Max. There's a note at the bottom that says this map belongs to, and then it has three names of previous people in the goof family. And then each one is crossed off. And then at the, at the bottom, it just says this map belongs to all the goofies. Mm Mm-hmm. And I feel like Goofy put that because he's sharing this map with his son and that will continue through time. And it's no longer about this one precious thing belonging to one person. It's about sharing it with the people that you love in, in this family. Mm-hmm. And it's so beautiful. And it, it hit me so hard. I'm like getting emotional <laughs> thinking about it now. And that's so powerful. He's just like, he just radiates this be yourself and I'll love you no matter what mm-hmm. energy. And yeah, like you said, who doesn't fucking want that as mm-hmm. a dad? So yeah, goofy. I'm surprised you're not naming Roxanne and or Max as bonus daddies, but it's a little complicated. So we'll move <laughs> past that. But yeah. I don't know what young child didn't have a crush on one or both of them. Totally. On these weird cartoon dogs. Okay, let's move to Rad Rack. Um, but first, Goofy. Be oh, your be da- your dad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Got too excited about it. Um, okay, Rad Rack. Um, we just wanted to say concretely and clearly, 
um, that we condemn genocide wherever it happens and that we believe in a free Palestine um, and that we're we're doing a lot of listening right now Mm -hmm. and a lot of reading from Palestinian voices and from other folks who are smart and thoughtful and well-informed. And we truly believe that art is a powerful medium to help give voice, um, to help people understand, to create dialogue and to create connections. So we want to, for a rad rack, encourage people to seek out art by and about, but thoughtfully about Palestinian people and the Palestinian struggle for freedom. I had a book club where we read Angela Davis's We Do This Till We Free Us, which is a series of essays. Uh, I also, you know, I think that as particularly as Canadians, and this was something we were talking about with Killers of the Flower Moon, that no, we are not from Oklahoma, but, you know, there are indigenous people in Alberta who mm-hmm. have faced violence and who have faced genocide and who have faced colonization at the hands of our ancestors and it's connected to oil. So there's a book that I, a book of poetry I read from called from turtle Island to Gaza, which makes some connections between the colonization of folks in indigenous folks in Canada to what's happening and what has, has been happening for 75 years in Palestine. um, And that is by David Gruel. So, you know, those are just two things that I've personally read and I need to seek out some more things myself. I also have been, looking for a compilation of, or like a list of films by Palestinian people. I found a really good list, but um, what's tricky about it is it's really hard to access those films, Mm. which is again, issues of access. And even when these films are made, but that's just our rad wreck is to seek out art by and about Palestinian people to be listening right now, especially if Mm -hmm. you are not Palestinian um, and to be willing to, take in the comp- the complicated nuance and challenge your own biases and sit with the the uncomfortable feelings yeah. and and fight for justice for all and freedom for all. Yeah, I think it's important to listen, to learn, to engage thoughtfully, respectfully and yeah, seek these things out. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday, like I mentioned off the top. We'll be dropping a new rad rap all about the Northwest Fear Fest this upcoming Sunday. So you can look forward to that. You can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life. and Drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. Well, that's going to do it for these goofy goofs this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.